You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello and welcome to Radically Pragmatic, a PPI podcast. My name is Veronica Goodman and I'm PPI's Director of Social Policy. For today's episode, I sat down with Aaron Sojourner, who is an Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Minnesota's Carlson School of Management. His research has focused on the effects of labor market institutions, early childhood and K-12 education systems, promoting equitable development of human capital, and behavioral economics and consumer financial decisions. We discussed the Biden administration's American Families Plan and the need for investment in early childhood education. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Hi everyone, I'm Veronica Goodman. I first wanna thank uh, Professor Aaron Sojourner of the University of Minnesota here with us today to discuss his recent report, Increasing Federal Investment in Children's Early Care and Education to Raise Quality, Access and Affordability which he co-authored for the Hamilton Project with Professor Elizabeth Davis. Aaron is a labor economist and associate professor at the University of Minnesota's Carlson School of Management. And he's also served as senior economist at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. So thank you, Aaron, for for making the time to discuss your latest work with me. Um, I think there's a great national conversation happening right now around making these historic public investments, including for kids. Um, you know, we're seeing through the child tax credit, the American Families Plan from the White House. So I think your proposal is very timely. Um, just to give a little bit of background, the report recommends expanding quality child care by increasing federal funding of early childhood education through a combined um, the combination of uh, contractor providers and scholarships. And these services uh, would be available to any family. So. Aaron, just to, to get us started, could you please briefly introduce yourself, describe a little bit about the report and, and your motivation for studying this topic in particular? Well, thanks, Veronica. Thanks for the invitation. And um, you did a great job introducing me. Uh, not sure what else to say. I, yeah, I'm a labor economist, do a lot of work on labor market institutions and uh, also policies to promote efficient and equitable development of human capacity, human capital. So sort of early childhood, and also K-12 policy primarily. Um, So, you know, what does early childhood care and education mean uh, here? Basically, you know, every kid develops through a process over the first five years of life before they get to K-12. And that process creates a lot of... um, differences in their in their trajectory of development. So uh, there's a lot of evidence that income-based gaps open up early in kids' lives. And once they hit K-12, actually the gaps kind of stop growing. Um, so early childhood care and education is whatever kids experience in those first few years of life. Um, and often it's with parents or, you know, uh, actually, before age five, uh, kids only average about 20 hours a week outside of their parents' care. So 
you know, if there's 168 hours in a week, 148 hours of those are with parents, with at least one parent, and 20 of them are, are with others. But, um, you know, that dual responsibility of caring and earning, you know, making sure the kid always has care while also trying to, you know, make sure the kid has a roof, the family has a roof over their head, food on the table. Um, that dual burden is, is very uh, pressing on, on families with young children because they don't get a lot of support. Great. Yeah, you preempted my, my first question, which was, um, what do Sorry. we mean when we, when we talk about early childhood care and education? So that's great. Um, and then, you know, often in, in the literature and, and when we talk in policy, we say high quality. Um, so I was just wondering whether you uh, could take a minute to explain what we mean when we say that. Um, high quality. It, so there's a lot of um, elements that go into quality and it is challenging to measure. And, you know, different people have different things that they value in, in care experiences. But uh, as social scientists, what people tend to mean is experiences that produce some capacity in kids. So the capacity could be like cognitive development, ability to, to learn and to, to grow and to analyze and to adapt. So, um, and to successfully, like it's a basically an ability to learn. And what that looks like is different at different stages in kids' lives but the foundation of it is responsive interactions with adults. And so uh, especially in, in early life, it really means like having somebody who's paying attention to you, who's looking at you, who's able to respond to you, who's able to like provide uh, different re reactions and challenges and stimulation uh, and, you know, if you make a noise or you make a movement, you know, they're there to respond appropriately and like to make a movement back or talk back or sing or count or, um, you know, it's nothing surprising. It's just what, uh, what kids need at that age is, is the attention of, of an adult and, you know, uh, somebody who's really like being responsive and being interactive. Uh, and, you know, other kids maybe uh, interacting with other kids too can, is also great. Uh, but, you know, not having the attention spread too thin, not having, you know, so many kids uh, with just one adult that the adult can't pay attention to everybody, can't uh, serve all their needs. Um, and, you know, that's on a baseline of safe and, you know, fed and warm and just physical basic safety things too. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I think uh, as you're, you're, you mentioned before, and you're kind of saying now these years are really critical for development um, and, and really require sort of this more intensive attention um, and, and individualized care. Um, 
so I thought in your report, it was interesting that you um, bring up that our investments in kids are sort of lopsided um, or uneven given uh, the age groups and, and what each one requires. So I was hoping um, you could talk a little bit about how uh, we invest in early care and education for per child versus older children um, and how this compares with other age groups. Yeah, so the system we have now is really messed up because it asks the most of families when they have the least. So when families have young children, the parents are, are younger. That means that they've had less time to save and you know, work in the past. Uh, so they have less accumulated as, uh, private assets. They also have lower current earning power than they will when their kids are older when their kids are in high school or elementary school or college uh, or you know, graduated from high school. So because they're earlier in their career, they have less experience. Um, so their earning power is lowest relative to when their kids are older. They also, they do have more future income when their kids are older, but they have less ability to access future income because they have lower credit scores. And that's something we documented in a report when I worked at the Council of Economic Advisors. So that means that if you think about like private resources that families have, they have less past income, they have less current earning power, and they have less future, they have less access to future income. Past, present, and future, that's all the kinds of private income. And so when your kids are youngest, you have less of it than you will when your kids are older. So when your kids are youngest, that's when you have the least. But at the same time, as a community, as a society, we ask the most of parents during that time. And what do I mean by that? So public policy is set up to make more public investments when kids are older than when kids are younger. So we spend over $12,000 per child per year between ages five and 17 across those 13 years, we spend over $12,000 a year on a K-12 education system. And that's, that's great and that's productive. Those are good investments to make. But we only spend about $1,500 per child per year uh, in the first five years of life. So we're spending you know, many times more uh, when kids are older than when kids are younger and we're expecting the family to carry the burden of care and education uh, when kids are younger, when they have less. And it, it doesn't make any sense. So, you know, we should be using public policy to compensate for the fact that families have less when their kids are younger. But in fact, we're using public policy to make the situation worse. Um, and that's not even, I mean, even further, we spend over $30,000 a year per American, uh, once Americans are over age 65, we you know a lot on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, retirement security. And, you know, that's, you know, there's good reasons for a lot of that, for sure. But just in terms of the payoff and the magnitudes of those uh, expenses, you know, we're spending $1,500 uh, a year per child, and we're spending... 30,000, over 30,000 
on folks, uh, older Americans. And, you know, these investments that we could be making in children's lives early in their lives, you know, would have payoffs, would have benefits uh, across their lives. And we're missing out on that opportunity to uh, create and support their de healthy development and their development of productive capacity. Um, and it's really a missed opportunity because there's a lot of evidence that, uh, you know, that, that those, in those investments change kids' lives, change the trajectory of their, of their lives and make them more productive, make them more, more uh, able to earn more in the labor market, you know, need public support less, uh, commit less crimes, so uh, and create a lot of inequality that sort of reproduces from one generation to the next. Uh, because again, we're like forcing, we're letting the parents, you know, current income dictate the circumstances of the young children's life uh, and the opportunities they have really heavily in those first five years. And you see big divergence open up in kids' development. Um, and we also see that from experiments where kids are randomly assigned to have access to high quality care, that it's not inevitable. It's not just genetics or something like that. It's, it's actually malleable. It's actually, if you, uh, if kids from low income families are offered access to free high quality care, their development changes and they end up looking more like kids from higher income families than like kids from low income families who don't have access to those care experiences. So uh, these are, you know, it's not baked in to the kids. Uh, it's the outcome of a process of development and investment that we choose. Yeah, I think so. So uh, you've convinced me, um, <laughs> but I guess uh, with all of that in mind and, and all of the benefits, um, uh, I'd love to hear about your proposal and the, and the four principles that you outline um, in terms of the recommendations. Yeah, so what we're saying is like the federal government has the opportunity to um, get these, create these benefits, the stream of benefits by investing in, in kids' early development. And what we would propose is uh, a way to do that that's, um, you know, reduces inequality, that increases uh, productive capacity of the American people, um, and does it in a way that's, you know, breaks intergenerational uh, inequalities. So what we're saying is um, there's a lot of different ways one could scale up this investment, but we're starting with the premise that uh, all families should have the right to access affordable uh, early care and education services in the years leading up to the K-12 system, uh, that the care should be high quality and should include, you know, cover the real costs of producing that care uh, efficiently uh, and look, you know, for each local, and it can vary locally across the country, obviously what it costs and to reflect that, but, make sure that there's resources allocated um, adequate to produce high quality care and attract and retain and motivate, um, you know, high quality talent to the sector. Um, 
the third thing is like supplemental services should be available as appropriate. We already have some like developmental special services available in the community. Um, and, you know, we should maintain that, um, expand it where it pays off. And, you know, the last principle is basically um, that we should harness competition in ways that are productive and we should uh, try to limit it in ways where it's destructive. Um, and so you can, you know, we set up a system that tries to do those things or we propose a system. Great. Um, and I think uh, one of the questions that you answer in the report, which I think um, some people would immediately have is, how is this different than expanding Head Start or early Head Start um, in terms of your proposal? Yeah, so, I mean, we do propose expanding uh, Head Start. Right now, Head Start only serves about a third of eligible um, preschool age kids, three and four year olds, and only about 11% of eligible, you know, infants and toddlers. And eligible children are, are living in poor families. So it's children in poor families are eligible to get it, but only a small fraction of those can actually get it because it's not funded uh, to serve them all. So we do propose expanding it and we do propose making it a real option for every child who's eligible uh, and also so that if they want it, they can get it and um, that it should be like not part day, part year, that it should be a real viable option to, to, for working families. Um, but also we go well beyond that. So we're saying, let's not just invest in Head Start. Let's not make that the only option. Let's also create a broader system that serves um, you know, all families and that, and basically, so Head Start is one option open to uh, families living in poverty, but also um, there's gonna be, sub, there would be uh, subsidies and access to um, childcare services in the community at nonprofits, at, um, you know, school-based pre-Ks at uh, other kinds of childcare, home-based providers. Um, and there would be locally determined payments that again, reflect the costs of producing high quality care in that community. Uh, and the costs would be split between the family and the public uh, according to the family's ability to pay. So, you know, basically like the family payment would be capped as a function of their, their income to poverty ratio. Uh, but the payment to the provider wouldn't be, it, it would not depend on the family's ability to pay. The payment to the provider would depend on the sort of cost of production. Um, and um, so this system of basically scholarships uh, and contract competitions between providers to serve local families uh, is broader than just serving uh, children in poor families with Head Start. Uh, it's, you know, also sort of middle class. Uh, and it 
serves everybody. It's open to everybody, but the you know families that have more income are expected to pay much larger share of the costs. And the, so the public investments um, is most in families where the family has the least and the in public investment is least in families that have the most. Sure. Um, and I guess the, the Biden administration has proposed uh, universal pre-K as part of the American Families Plan. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, their proposal in terms of, I mean, you know, the details that are out um, and, and how your proposal can inform that. Yeah, so the, it's, very, it's similar in a lot of ways. They propose um, universal pre-K uh, which is, you know, sort of privileging school-based uh, care for three and four-year-olds. Uh, and, but they also do have the option to like go into the private market and have a cap of 7% of family income as the family payment with the public subsidy picking up the rest of the cost for families up to 150% of state median income. So that serves a lot of families and that would cover a lot of families. There would be like a cliff at 150% of state median income where you wouldn't uh, get any support. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our proposal is to sort of have a smooth program where there's not a cliff. And if costs go up, you know, as they should, like prices and costs should go up as quality increases and as a commitment to quality increases. The point of the whole th thing is to put more resources into the sector mm -hmm. and to put more resources into improving the quality of kids' care experiences. So the costs going up is, is a feature, not a bug. Like, uh, But what that does mean is that, um, you know, there are families that would be covered under our plan, but not under uh, the White House plan, but they would be covered under our plan with pretty low subsidy rates. So it's, um, so broadly, I, you know, I think the, the White House plan uh, is a very, would be a huge step forward. Uh, you know, we can quibble on some of the details, but like uh, it would be, uh, a big step forward, and I'm glad that uh, that people are advocating for different kinds of scaled up investments in early childhood. Um, it's great that we're having a debate over how to do that, yeah. and not a debate over whether to do that. You know, uh, I mean, we still are having that debate too. But I think another thing that our proposal does is get a lot more into the implementation issues mm -hmm. than you've seen, um, at least from the public statements of a lot of the uh, plans that are out there. So trying to think through how do you build a flexible, adaptable system mm -hmm. that you know, uses competition to learn about the cost of production um, and to learn about what families value in in uh, early care and education services and how to get providers to meet that demand. Um, 
while also assuring quality uh, because the public is putting in money. So you wanna make sure that the public is getting a return out. So quality assurance is a big deal. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's it's exciting that we're uh, largely debating the details. Um, but I guess related to that, uh, one of my questions was um, what you you see as some of the challenges um, to to building support from it for it um, through you know getting it passed and and um, implementing it. I don't. You know, I'm not a political expert, so I, I don't have a lot of uh, opinions about it. Uh, you know, I think this was our effort looking at the research uh, on how important children's first five years is and how unequal children's experiences are and how the consequences of that for their development and, you know, lost productivity in adulthood uh, and also just like the crisis that families experience every day from the shortage of investment in, in kids' early lives. So, you know, it, it presents itself in many ways. It presents as like the family can't find care. The family can't afford care. The family can't find care that they think is good enough. Uh, you know, the family's struggling between to make a living and provide care, you know, homelessness for young families with young children. Workers, uh, you know, providers can't hire workers. They can't retain workers. There's too much turnover. Kids, you know, can't maintain a, a stable relationship with their care provider because people are always bouncing in and out of the workforce. Like all of these problems are related to the fact that there's a shortage of early childhood investment. Mm -hmm. And um, so we looked at that and we said, like, how would we best case scenario design a system to do this? There are people who look at the evidence and ignore it and say, basically, I don't want to pay. I think people shouldn't, uh, people should be on their own. And if you want to have a kid, just you, you, it's your responsibility. And um, or they say, you know, look, we care about people not having to pay taxes and just like we don't want the government involved. Uh, and, you know, those are pe people have those some people have those positions and they're going to oppose these kinds of investments. Um, you know, they would impose K-12 schools on the same principle, you know, they would, uh, although often they don't, just because they think, I don't know, it doesn't occur to them that there's this basic continuity in kids' lives and, you know, the same um, uh, arguments fit. So, yeah, and let me just, like, there's two big market failures in early childhood the first one is that the way we have it set up now, like parents pay the full cost of creating these high quality experiences for kids, but they don't get the full benefit. The, the benefit of kids having these experiences are 
not just enjoyed by the parents, the benefits are enjoyed by their future neighbors, by their future employers, by, you know, by society broadly. It's the same spillover benefits that justify investments in public education. It's the same argument. And it, you know, people maybe 50 years ago thought that what happened before age five didn't really matter, that you know, because I can't remember much about what happened before five, it must not really matter mm-hmm. uh, for, for development. But that's, um, that's a mistake. And there's a lot of evidence uh, that that's false um, from uh, great experimental uh, social science research. So the first, ex- the first market failure is that we're asking parents to pay the full cost, but they don't reap the full benefit. So the fact that fact means that they're not going to invest optimally. They're going to underinvest. The second market failure is related to what I was saying before is that parents can't even marshal the private resources to invest as the amount that they want. They're severely credit constrained, especially uh, sort of families with lower earning power. And so even if they wanted to invest more, they can't borrow enough to invest more. And that's, so you have these two big market failures. Uh, And so just saying to people, well, the parents should figure it out, it's their responsibility, that's guaranteed to get us, you know, bad outcomes. It's guaranteed to get us too little investment. It's guaranteed to get us, um, you know, generations of, of Americans who can't fulfill their potential and where inequality is hardened. Um, and, you know, there's not equal opportunity. Um, right. Which is what we've seen. <laughs> so it's, it's time for, to try to front. Um, So uh, I would be remiss if I didn't also ask you, um, as a a labor economist, uh, are there any other proposals from the White House um, that that you're particularly excited about um, or that you think will help uh, working families um, as is related to this conversation on on early childhood? I think the White House is putting out a lot of strong proposals. Um, You know, the American Jobs Plan is... I think the build back better motto is actually a really accurate uh, summary of what they're trying to do and what their plans would accomplish. So I think one of the critical problems that we, our society has faced over the last, you know, 50, 60 years is like declining demand for the labor of people with lower, with less formal education. So if you look at, um, you know, especially folks with a high school degree or less than a high school degree, their labor force participation rates have declined, especially for men, have declined very steadily, um, you know, for decades. And there's been a lot of argument about what are the causes of that, but I think the evidence really strongly supports the idea that there's just sort of less demand uh, for that kind of labor. And what that means is that, you know, there's a lot of people in our communities who 
struggle to find ways to contribute, you know, struggle to find a place in, in the community, a place in the economy. And the American Jobs Plan is designed to boost demand for that kind of labor. So 90% of the jobs that would be created don't require a college degree. It's you know, construction jobs, it's uh, care jobs, elder care, uh, you know, other, other kinds of care. And these are like, those are valuable uh, kinds of work that our community needs done. And they're uh, work that people with less formal education can productively do. And um, so it's really great, but again, like the public, but they depend on public leadership and they depend on public investment. They, if you just leave it to the market, the market's not gonna invest to repair bridges or uh, you know, retrofit the utility uh, to modernize the utility grids. Like those are public decisions that require public resources. So uh, I think it's great that we're talking about how to uh, both satisfy needs our community has for new investment and do it in a way that will create opportunity for, for folks uh, to earn and build careers. Uh, and be productive in the community. Uh, and that's in, a pl in places where people have struggled. So I'm excited about that. That's yeah, nice. me too. I mean, um, you know, that's one of the areas of focus that we've been looking at and, and increasingly of interest in the, in the economic recovery following the pandemic. Um, as you're saying, kind of non-college educated workers are again getting left behind, even the ones that did have jobs. Um, so, so I think the American Jobs Plan can't come soon enough um, yeah. for, for getting them back to to work and and back to work better. Um, so that's great. Um, are there any other topics um, with uh, related to research on early childhood education or else, or what's next for you in this space that you're excited about? This was a this is a big thing. I guess the next the next piece of work I have on early childhood is. We, we've been working on a report that just documents and describes inequality in U.S. children's experiences in early childhood. So um, people have looked at different pieces of this before, but usually like one study will use one way of looking at it and they'll look at parental care. And another study will use another way of looking at it and they'll look at, you know, center-based care or Head Start or like it's happening in different settings and it's hard to get a unified picture of children's experiences. Some people are looking at it from like a parent labor supply perspective. Mm -hmm. you know, others are looking at it from like this, this particular care sector, part of the care sector, like pre-K or something. So what we've done is like started to, we've used like six different nationally representative data sets to try to stitch together a comprehensive representative view of the children's first five years, like their whole day, their whole year, you know, every hour, like trying to look at it from kids' perspectives and trying to look at inequality. So how does the experience of kids, you know, from more disadvantaged backgrounds, differ from uh, those from, 
for kids from more advantaged backgrounds. Uh, and what we see is that, yeah, again, like in terms of parental care, in terms of non-parental care, like uh, there's just disadvantage. There's it's a, the current system is producing just disadvantage after disadvantage uh, for some kids and advantage after advantage for other kids. And you know, I think our work is trying to just make that picture clear uh, that the status quo is is you know producing these outcomes for kids, and it's you know uh, I don't like it. Um, so. <laughs> I don't either, but that's an ambitious uh, undertaking. I'm, I'm excited to see uh, what, what you find. Um, so those are the questions that I have. It's been really interesting. And, and thank you so much for taking the time to discuss your research uh, with me today. I hope everybody takes the time to read the full paper, which will link to the recording for this conversation. But thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.